I want to talk a little bit today with regard to teamwork. Uh, if you know a little bit about politics, you understand. I think there's an expression that sometimes said that politics, or if not politics, but other things similar to it, it's a bit like herding cats. It's really hard because every politician they say has got a has got a field marshal's baton in his in his briefcase, and he thinks he should be the leader. So it'd be very hard to get real teamwork within a political party. And sometimes leaders have to use some very, very harsh discipline to keep people in line. It's not a simple uh, situation that they're in. Also, I think about when it comes to teamwork, I think about sport. I'm a very great uh, fan of the Queensland Maroons and and I just love um, following them and I love seeing them win. I'm I'm a very biased supporter. But I think... I often think about the expression that says, well, what sort of a team uh, is the Queensland Maroons, or what's a good team? Is it a team of champions, or is it a champion team? A team of champions where you get really good players together, but they're all out doing their thing, but they're not working together. Whereas a champion team are people that are good at what they do, but they work together and they win. And I think actually think that that's why the Queensland team just do so well, because they, even though they've got excellent players, they still play together very well. Teamwork is something also which is essential when it comes to ministry within the church. Teamwork is essential for fruitful work in church mission. So it applies to every church. Uh, that's there. So I want to get, tell you the title of my talk today, which will be, th- which is this, which is, I can be a servant-minded, humble team player. I can be a servant-minded, humble team player. Now, what we're looking at the passage today, I want to just briefly explain the structure of it because I think that's important because everything actually fits together as you work your way through. It starts off at the start talking about living a life worthy of the gospel. And it emphasises two things about being committed in our faith, not only committed, but being united, united in the sense of being part of a team. Then the next part says, well, look, when an unbeliever sees this, when an unbeliever sees the church really working together as a team, being the people that Jesus has called us to be, then he says that's a really strong message to unbelievers. It, it comes through when we go through those verses shortly. And then when, when, um, when Paul goes further, in the next section he says, he says that what we need to do is to seek unity and humbly serve others. So there's a couple of things about the whole passage that stick together. It's this idea of unity or teamwork, of humility, of service, of commitment. All of those things are basically interconnected. Then he says, so he says, seek unity and humbly serve others. And then he goes on to a section, he says, well, who's the perfect example of humility and service and commitment? Who is the perfect example? Well, of course, the perfect example, of course, is Jesus. So then Paul starts talking about Jesus, but then it's almost as if he gets really excited and, and almost sort of like overwhelmed in awe about what he's saying about Jesus. And then in the last part, in verses 9 to 11, he makes this magnificent statement with regard to Jesus. So that's basically the breakup. The passage all holds together, and there's a little 
a line that runs all the way through it. So let's go back to the start, looking at verses 27 and the first part of verse 28. It says, live worthy of the gospel, committed and united. And he begins by saying, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whenever I see the word, uh, the mention of the word gospel, I think it's important that we remind ourselves essentially what that is. Broadly speaking, the gospel is the story of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Who he is, why he came, what he did, especially dying on the cross to pay for your sins and mine, and also what he promises and says with regard to the future. But I think when we, ever we talk about the gospel, we've also got to say, well, the gospel is, the gospel, well, that's a fact, but it's of no benefit to us if we just say, well, look, that's the gospel. We have to make the benefits, the blessings of the gospel ours. We have to appropriate it to us. And how do we do that? What's God's way of, deemed way of doing that? It is through faith in Jesus and what he has done. Now, then it goes on, it says, Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I just want to go back and have a little bit of a look at that. It says, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. Stand firm meaning that you are committed to the faith that you have, the faith, belief or trust that you have in Jesus. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. So what's the spirit that he's referring to? Of course, he's referring to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I think this is something that we need to get clear as well. When we first become, when we first put our trust in Jesus, God gives us His Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, He gives us His Holy Spirit to live within us. And so the life we live as a Christian is not just, is not setting, following a set of rules like some sort of moralistic conduct. It's not that. Rather, it's a life empowered by the heart guiding us, correcting us, encouraging us. All the Holy Spirit does so many wonderful things. If we do not have the Holy Spirit, we are not a believer. We are not a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Um, so this is the wonderful thing. So he says, in the one spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is God's gift upon our first belief. Then he says, striving together as one, meaning being that we united for, then he says, for the faith of the gospel. What's he mean when he says that? For the faith of the gospel. What he's really saying is, he's talking about for the true content or the authentic gospel. Because as you read through the New Testament, there are many, many situations, and it still happens today, of course. It's happened for over the last 2,000 years and will continue on in the future, where there are many people who are preaching a false gospel or a, or a doctored gospel or something that's less than the gospel that's been put forward by Paul uh, in the New Testament. Then he says, for the, for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. We can all be frightened. We can all be frightened. And there are times, you know, there are times we have opportunity to speak up about our faith and we don't do it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty of that too often. 
that I see a situation where I could have spoken, but I didn't. And I, I definitely am endeavouring to do that better. For those who oppose you, whether subtly, and people can oppose us subtly, or people can uh, uh, oppose us in a much more straightforward and outspoken way. Right up. The next section we look at, so we've, we've started talking about live a life worthy of the gospel. So it started by saying a life worthy of the gospel, committed and united. Then it says this is a sign for unbelievers. This is what it says. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. There's a lot in this. It says this. What's, what's he mean by this? Well, this is what he talks about in the first part, which is confidence in the gospel, commitment, unity, and teamwork. He's saying when people see that in a church, right, this is a sign for them, the unbeliever, that they will be destroyed. It's not nice to be able, not, it certainly is not nice to be able to, or to have to say that. What's he mean by will be destroyed? Which means eternally condemned, separated from God, on the day of judgment. This is one of the things that Jesus talks about, part of the gospel, looking forward to the future. But that you will be saved, and that by God. So when we say we're saved, we are, we are saved for something, but we are saved from something at the same time. So we are saved what for? For an eternity in heaven with God. It, it is remarkable that we think about that. That's just the most incredible privilege. But what are we also saved from? From from the point that of con- I believe that we uh, p- people we become a person from the point of conception in our mother's womb, not from the not but right from the early time. From that time, we have a default destination. A default destination is where we go if nothing is changed. So if nothing is changed. Our default destination is to go with the unbelievers, is eternal condemnation. So we are saved for heaven, but we are saved from eternal condemnation. And what's the thing that changes? It is that point, that point in a person's life where they first put their trust in, authentically put their trust in Jesus. That's the time when our fate our, our, our default destination is changed to a new destination. Right. Then he says, this is verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. For it has been granted, now it's been granted, it's not something that we're earned. Once again, it comes back this idea about that many have about uh, Christianity being like a set of moral rules, and if I do that, I will earn, earn God's favour. No. It, it's, what's it say here? For it has been granted, being it's gifted, not earned. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but this is the bit we don't like to, like to hear, but this is this is part of what we must preach. We must preach in the Bible. We've got to preach the whole counsel of God. There are wonderful things, but there are also bits that we would sort of prefer they weren't there. But, we, but we've got to acknowledge that they are. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering is not a curse, but a blessing. And can I say, I don't want that to become across as being said lightly. It's not, because many people, all of us, on at times suffer very 
painfully, can I say that, that that's a reality about life. I don't want to treat that lightly, but more and more now I view it as a blessing. Why? Because it builds godly character. I read an article just the other day by Charles Spurgeon. You may you may know his name, a famous preacher um, from England, and he had a lovely article there about about suffering and about sickness. And the whole thrust of what he was saying was there is so much good from suffering that it builds godly character. When I look at the world, when I consider the idea about suffering, I look at the world now and I see the world is seeking through morality, self-righteousness, wanting to find an answer to the problems that we have in the world. I believe really quite strongly that what that's doing is just digging a deeper and deeper hole that people are going into. I love the song we said spoke before. It didn't have these exact words, but I love to say to people that Jesus is the answer. And he is the only answer. And I think the, what I'm getting at is that I believe that suffering for believers will increase. It will become harsher. It will become more difficult. But God is good. He is with us and he will encourage us and strengthen us. But the world will continue to, to be looking for answers in the wrong place. And they will, in a sense, they will explode with frustration. We can even see the signs of that happening now. Right. Then it goes on and he says, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, we don't have this at this thing at stage, things like beatings and detention, etc., etc., that Paul is experiencing. But I do believe that the Christians going forward, it, it's going to be a difficult time. If there's ever was a time, there's always as a believer, we need to be thoroughly committed because if, if we're not, I can't see how a person will be able to survive uh, in the future uh, when things move on. Let me look at the next section, which is where Paul says, seek unity and humbly serve others. Let me read this to you. This is verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind or united. So he's got four ifs there. And he can sort of like, he can sort of, you, can, you can view it one way. He can either be saying it if, it's like a challenge. Well, is this true about you, for example? You know, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you encouraged by that? So he's giving a challenge to people, perhaps a person who is, who is um, 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 just, just sort of pulling back a bit with regards to their faith or a person who's not yet a believer. But he also, but he also could be saying it for another completely different reason, which is not to challenge people, but rather to remind people of the great blessings that they've received. Like, is there anything, is there any blessing in life that is greater than being a believer? It isn't. It can't, it, it's just, that's an impossibility. And, and it, it, it seems too good to be true. But it is. We don't deserve it, but we have this incredible blessing. Right, then he goes, so let's look at verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. Rather in humility, so we're looking again about seek unity, humility and, and a servant mindset. Rather in humility value others above ourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Let's look at that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Basically, it's sort of like, I want. It's all about, I want. But it needs to be God's will. I wonder, lovely verses, not my will, but thine be done, that Jesus speaks. I love that. It is so true about life. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What's vain conceit? Basically, a summary of it would be to say, it's an inflated self-opinion. It's an inflated self-opinion. I'm a bit more... And pastors and church leaders can easily fall into that trap very, very easily. And it's something that they may have to work through um, in their ministry experience. But I'm sure that many church leaders or virtually every church leader at some time to some degree will be caught up in that trap. Then he says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. So what's humility mean? Accurate self-evaluation. Accurate self-valuation, especially compared to God. So who are we before God? We are sinners. Who, who, who is a believer? A sinner saved by God's grace. A rebel against God saved because God is good and he compares and he uh, loves us. So isn't that a great uh, encouragement to humility. What's Romans chapter 12 verse 3 say? Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. You know, sometimes it's very hard to do that, isn't it, eh? It's so easy to think more highly of ourselves, but to, to, but to view ourselves with sober judgment. That's a great, uh, that's a great goal. Then it says, value others above yourselves. That is, put their needs first. That's a challenge as well. Not looking to your own interests. So it's not saying, it's not saying completely ignore your own interests. Obviously we're going to be looking after our own interests, but they are not to be paramount. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I remember when I first became a believer, um, what a lot of pastors and speakers used to do is they used to bring up the name Mahatma Gandhi. Some of you may not know that name, but he was a, a great leader. Well, he, he was a, I won't use the word great, I'll use the word he was a leader of non-violence in India. And he led, what he did led to the British leaving India and India becoming a um, republic, you know, a self-governed uh, country. And what he did, what people, people often cite him as an example of, you know, Christ-like conduct. But what people don't know is I read, before I became a believer, I did a lot of reading, and one of the things I read about was Gandhiism, the teaching of Mahatma Gandhi. And what people don't realise is that at a stage in, one stage in his life, he went to South Africa, he was a lawyer, went to South Africa, and he was in a train, I think he was in a train or something, but he was reading the Bible, or re, I think he was reading the Bible, uh, so he knows all about Christianity. But in the end, this is what Mahatma, this is the decision that Mahatma Gandhi came, came to. 
And this comes back to the fact that we, it's necessary for us to be a good witness as well. Gandhi said regarding Christians generally, he said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. So that's what he said. Now, some people would say, well, that's the perfect excuse not to be a believer. Well, of course, on the day of judgment, that, that, that will have no, zero strength, no strength whatsoever. Because the fact that, the fact that there are many believers who are flawed, including myself, um, that doesn't discount the truth of the gospel. Gandhi got that one wrong. Right, now, so the next section is verses 5 to 8. Now, after saying all of this, Paul then says, well, who's the perfect example of humility and service? That's Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or his own selfish advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. So it says that what he did, he emptied himself of glory. He didn't have the glory that he had in heaven, except there are a couple of times, there are a couple of times where that, where it was true. He did show his glory, but he didn't lose his divine attributes. He may have um, curtailed his use of them for a while, but that's, but did not give away those divine attributes. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So it's interesting to note that, that, and this is interesting to note too with the Australian Open coming up shortly or tennis season starting in Australia. He came as doulos, which is the Greek for servant or slave. He came as a servant. Not kurios, which is the Greek word for lord. And you would know a guy called Nick Kyrios, the tennis player. That's where, that's where, that's what his name means in Greek. It's spelled slightly differently, but that is the word for Lord in Greece, in Greek. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now this is a bit of a difficulty area. Jesus is both fully man and fully God. I can't explain that to you. That's a bit, that's more than my mind can really comprehend. It's a mystery, but I accept it as being true. I accept that that is clearly um, the teaching of Scripture, and the Scripture is a united whole. If we take that out, as some people do, then really the whole Bible just falls right down. The, the Bible is one message, but some people want to toy with it, but they, by doing that, uh, they, destroy, they destroy the whole thrust of it. Right now being made in human likeness. Then it finishes by saying, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He comes back to humility again and servant mindhood. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which is the an ultimate sign of God's love and God's character, the fact that he would do that. I don't deserve God's favour. I know that. None of us do. But nevertheless, he's done it for us. Now, so after Paul said this, he then, he, he, he sort of like caught up in this awe in relation to Jesus. And right at the last three verses, this is where he makes this sort of awesome statement. Let me read it to you, verses 9 to 11. 
Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me go back and have a bit of a look at that. Therefore God exalted him. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 23 verse 12? He said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't that a, a message, an encouragement and a warning to us as well? Then he says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, which is what? Seated next to the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And gave him the name, what's the name he's referring to? He gave him the name, the name Lord. And gave him the name that is above every name. So you might think, back when this was written, of course, who was the leading person in the, um, in the, uh, geographic re- in, the, in, the, in the empire he, this was all written in what? in the Roman Empire and who was the lord in a sense at that time? well it would be the emperor Emperor Nero and we might think about a modern example um, you, you know the leader of, of North Korea and I think his name is correctly pronounced Kim Jong Un um, I think that's right or it's very close to it He's considered to be a god by many people in North Korea. Emperor Nero was treated like a god in the empire. But what's it say? And gave him the name, or Lord, that is above every name. So well above the emperor, well above the North Korean leader and anyone else. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now this is a very interesting point. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Should bow, why? Or what would bring that about? Because the day will come when they will see him, what? As God. We will see him as God. The unbeliever will see him as God. We will see him joyfully. But the unbeliever will see him in dread. It's a very, very different situation. This is part of, this is part of the Bible. We need to know this. There's the good bits and there's the hard bits. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Peter, the apostle Peter say, uh, ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven? This was the day of Pentecost. What did he say? This is part of what he said. He said, God has made, this is in Acts chapter 2 verse 36, God has made, remember this, remember this verse? And he's speaking to a lot of people who are not believers at, this, at, at the time, as well, as well as believers. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. A name above every other name, to whom all of us will give an account one day. Not just unbelievers, but believers as well. Right, let me come to the end. We've worked our way through the passage. The question that comes up is this. So what was the the title of the talk again? I can be a humble, servant-minded team player. Am I? 
Is that a good description of me? Is that shown in my attitude of unity, humility and service? Is that a reality? Is that true about us? None of us are going to get it perfectly right, but the, but the thing is, is to be patient and persevere and allow ourselves to grow to become more and more that person. We can be so, we can be this person, but only in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who equips all believers. We cannot do it in our own. We might think we might delude ourselves or deceive ourselves in the thinking that we can do it, but we can't. What does is, what is, um, Peter say in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3? So this is, this is to explain why we can be this sort of person. His divine power, this is what Peter said in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Now, if you don't believe it, go to your Bible, read it. That's what it says. And I believe what the Bible says is true. What he's saying is, is that his divine power, he's talking about Jesus' divine power, or that he's referring then to what comes to live within, which is the Holy Spirit within, which we are given when we become a believer, has given us, that's believers, everything we need for a godly life. Can I come back to what I said at the start? The Christian life is a supernatural existence. It's got nothing to do with following a set of rules. It's got nothing to do with pulling out the, the, the Ten Commandments once a day and saying, ticking them all off and saying, well, I've, I've, I've done most of those today, so God's going to be happy with me because that's, I've, I've passed the test. It's not that. It's not that. It's the Holy Spirit working within us to bring about a transformative change within it. What we need to do is to believe this verse from God's word. Believe it to be true and not believe Satan's whisperings against it. What does Satan do with a verse like that? He'll say, well, look, it's, it's, it's not true. It's much harder than that. Uh, that, that might p- apply to some, some people, but not to me. And he might turn it towards us and say, well, look, you don't deserve favour from God, you're not a good person you call yourself a Christian Satan is it we are called to believe what scripture says but push aside what Satan whispers to us to seek to handicap us within the Christian life let me pray dear heavenly father Lord we thank you for your word your totally reliable word that we can build our life on confidently and wisely. Lord, may we seek to know your word, be encouraged by it, and to live by it. In Jesus' name, amen.